the mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. So I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed. All her sacred treasures will be burned. These things were bought with the money earned by her prostitution, and they will now be carried away to pay prostitutes elsewhere. Therefore, I will mourn and lament. I will walk around barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For my people's wound is too deep to heal. It has reached into Judah and even the gates of Jerusalem. Don't tell our enemies in Gath. Don't weep at all. You people in Beth Lepra, roll in the dust to show your despair. You people in Shafir, go as captives into exile, naked and ashamed. The people of Zanan dare not come outside the walls. The people of Beth Azel mourn, for their house has no support. The people of Moroth anxiously wait for relief, but only bitterness awaits them as the Lord's judgment reaches even to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness your chariots, horse, horses, and flee, you people of Lashish. You were the first city in Judah to follow Israel in her rebellion, and you led Jer- Jerusalem into sin. Send farewell gifts to Moresheth Gath. There is no hope of saving it. The town of Akzib has deceived the kings of Israel. O people of, of Mereshah, I will bring a conqueror to capture your town, and the leaders of Israel will go to Adalam. O people of Judah, shave your heads in sorrow, for the children you love will be snatched away. Make yourselves as bald as a vulture, for your little ones will be exiled to distant lands. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good morning. We're glad you could join us this morning. My name is Josh Kim, one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. Um, we are glad that you are here as we continue our sermon series, picking up where we left off after Jonah in Micah, in 12 minor prophets, often forgotten prophets, that we'll talk about. Micah's name translates as, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? And before we begin, let's pray um, one more time as we delve into God's word together. Father, we pray as we delve into this Micah that you will speak to us. The harsh words, we hear them, um, especially in the beginning of the new year. But Lord, as we think about these words, meditate upon them. And remember that grass withers, flowers fade, but word of God stands forever. And all God's people say, Amen. During my college years, there was one week on campus that, uh, that had an angry preacher come to town. Remember them? These were not only those who were shouting the message of Jesus love and encouraging them to come to Christ. Rather, these were the guys that preached fire and brimstone, saying, you will die and go to hell. That was it. That was a the message they often would say. And they would get into arguments with everybody that would come along the way and threatening them to say, this culture, this world is going to burn. And they would say, God is angry at you. Therefore, God will punish you in hell. Well, 
It brought about many interesting experiences, not only for those who are on campus, those who did not believe in who Christ was, but especially from the churchgoers, or Christ followers. Some, like me, will cringe. We'll quick to disassociate ourselves and say, I don't know that guy. <laughs> That's not me, right? And some would validate his message. But many were often unsure of what to do, especially as onlookers at times walked away in disgust, wondering why that message. And I think a lot of us struggle with that when we hear about God's anger and God's message of punishment of sin. Along with many college students at the time, that left wondering more so about the message of the gospel itself. But the question is, why is God so angry? And if that is a picture of God that I see, then why do I want to follow someone like him? Especially in the Old Testament text we just read. What a great text to begin the new year, right? God is angry at you. That's how it begins. It seems like God is full of anger most of the time. Richard Dawkins is a renowned atheist. He wrote in his book, God Delusion, he says, the God of Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He believed the Bible was fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's what he says. And it's not just the atheist, I would say. But even those who follow God, who believe the Bible as nonfiction, it brings an interesting question to our hearts. Is God really always that angry? Is God really angry at me? I think especially for the youth that are sitting here, when I was a youth pastor, I often did this with our, uh, our youth. I would often say, close your eyes and imagine God. And often our youth will come and say, I picture God who's so angry at me, who wants to punish me, who wants to call out every little thing that I do and say that's wrong. And oftentimes, that's the picture of God I have. Therefore, why would I want to come to church and to be yelled at for an hour about things I've done wrong? Perhaps it's not just the youth that are sitting here that have a picture of that in your mind, but many of us, many of us sometimes picture God like that. God who's angry at me, angry all the time. Especially of the pictures that we see these past years. As we see the angry mob storming the Capitol, waving Jesus saves flag. Or in the back and forth discussion on sexuality, gender roles. What books should we read and not read? Or our children should read and not read? We have seen so many of these angry, so-called angry Christians that seem to represent angry God more than loving God. So when we come to the text like what we read this morning, we can't help but to wonder and cringe and wonder, why is God so angry? Again, in the Old Testament, we see God more angry than we like. And we often want to go straight to the New Testament and say, well, that's, that's God of the old, but the God of new is God of love. Perhaps the stories like Jonah is so popular because it talks about God who relents from anger. And stories like Micah is never talked about because God does not relent from anger. And we often say, let's talk about Jonah. 
Let's talk about the gospel of the New Testament, but let's not talk about the Old Testament, the anger of God at sin. He seems more rigid, more angry than I like. And in all honesty, the reason why we do not want God to be angry is in part because we don't know why he's angry. And sometimes we often assume, and often, most of the times, we don't want him to be angry because we think it's not justified. At times we wonder if he's being fair, being angry towards human beings like us. Well, God is God, I'm not, we say, right? Therefore, why would God put impossible standards on us? And those are often the arguments people make. Well, we start with that. We start there as we delve into Micah. Micah is a prophet from a small town of Moresheth, about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, who ministered to both Israel, the ten, ten tribes, and the two tribes, Judah, during the time of God's uh, uh, Israel's destruction at the time. So it is fitting, perhaps, to think that here's a prophet who not only spoke of God's anger towards Israel, but he saw through it how God's anger was played out. And as we begin this study, we ask, why is God so angry? And perhaps why he's so angry, we are going to use Micah's name. After all, as we saw Micah's name, oftentimes, um, prophet's name is often used to illustrate God's name to us. Micah means, who is like God? And we're going to use that to delve into this text. And two things we'll see. First thing we'll see is, who is like this God in his anger? Who is like this God in his anger? According to psychologist Daniel Goleman, he says, emotions are, in essence, impulses to act. The instant plans for handling life that evolution has instilled in us. That's psychology speaking. And in his book, Emotional Intelligence, Goleman tells that anger causes blood to flow to our hands, making it easier for us to strike an enemy or hold a weapon. Our hearts rate speed up, and a rush of hormones, including adrenaline, creates a surge of energy strong enough to take vigorous action. And often say it is designed to protect us. And we recognize there is emotion of anger. And we get that. And as the author writes, if you want to understand more about anger, says we need to treat anger like an iceberg. There's a reason for anger to surface. So as we unpack God's anger, we read Micah here, we see that God's anger is burning hot. That's what verse 3 says. Like, look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountain knelt beneath his feet. The flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. Amen. Let's go praise the Lord, right? No. <laughs> We're like, oh, Lord, what's going to happen? It sounds like an angry preacher again. So beneath this anger, we have to ask ourselves, why is God so angry? What is causing this? And we find in verse 5, and this is what it says. And the author actually anticipates your question and ask this question. So why is this happening? Right? And he says, because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria is capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. Here, two capital cities are leading this nation astray. And we get a clue of why this is such an angering issue for God in verse 2. Verse 2 says, Attention, let all the people of the world, not just Israel, but all the people of the world listen and watch. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord, Yahweh, is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy 
temple. The word attention here is another word, or it's translated here in English as well. It's a familiar Hebrew word called Shema. A strong call to hear and listen. Do you remember where Shema comes from too? This harkens back to the common Hebrew prayer called Shema of Deuteronomy, which begins with Shema, hear, attention. And remember what Deuteronomy 6 says. It says, listen, O Israel, or hear, attention, Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. And not only in Deuteronomy, but throughout their Exodus journey, period of judges and kings, Israel is reminded of their covenant, their promise, their their rescue out of Egypt, brought into the promised land. And what God asks of this exile community is, I am God and God alone, therefore you are committed to me. And what we find in the beginning of Micah is Israel is breaking this vow, this commandment, this commitment. And oftentimes as we read the words, they're prostituting, meaning they are not truly being faithful to the one they're committed to, but they're selling themselves to other idols. And when you find throughout the history of Israel after King Solomon where these nations break, each nation leads astray to darkness. After Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided into two northern ten tribes, bind together from Israel with the capital city in Samaria. And suddenly two tribes of Judah and Benjamin form Judah with his capital city in Jerusalem. And then when the kingdom is divided, fearing the ten tribes of the north will abandon the northern kingdom, King Jeroboam sets high places, false places of worship in Samaria, Bethel, and other places, instructing his people to worship there. And we get a particular insight into this in the city of Lachish, or uh, Lachish, in verse 13. It says, Harness your chariots, horses, and flee, you people of Lachish. You were the first city in Judah to follow Israel in her rebellion, and you led Jerusalem into sin. God singles out this city here because this is the beginning of sin for Judah. Why? Because Lachish was a gateway city of the Phoenician culture into Judah. It is through this city pagan idolatry enters into southern kingdom. In fact, archaeologists found Canaanite, Phoenician idols in Jewish graves during excavation. Church, before we point fingers and say, look at these foolish Israelites or Judeans, before we say, what were they thinking? Don't they know their history? Don't they know where they come from? Don't they know God promises them blessing? By merely following him alone? The question that we have to answer is how often we set up idols in our own lives. It may not be the idols of a wooden sculpture or other religions we often associate idolatry idolatry with, but idolatry, according to the Bible, is not only following those religions, but we often have idols living in our hearts. When our hearts' royalty is divided, is what you worship really reveals to us what you really are worshiping, what you value, the choices that we often make, who you spend time with, how you spend your time with, how you spend your resources, often show you what your life is wrapped around. That means the idols can be your job, your careers, your studies, your houses, your cars, your investment, your reputation, all that. But also, it could be your children. It could be your family. It could be the comfort 
It could be your own standards of how things should be done. Your hopes and your dreams can be an idols of your life. As C.S. Lewis so aptly said, our hearts are idol factories. We continuously deal with idolatry in our hearts. Pastor and author Tim Keller said, well, to capture this definition, when good things, whatever it may be, becomes the ultimate thing in our lives, it becomes an idol for us. Church, the question is, are you dealing with an idol this morning? And the question is, can you even see them? Can you even identify with them? Why are you going with the flow so much where you realize your heart is being led astray? Church, if God is angry at all, if he's angry, and if you're repentant at all at this point, the first place to look at before looking at angry God is examining ourselves and see what idols do I have that I hold on to so dearly in my life. We often close our eyes when we pray, and I love doing that not because I could fall asleep, but because when I close my eyes, I realize I could pretend to be so righteous from many people. But when I close my eyes, when I stand before the Lord who knows my heart, it reveals so much of my idols in my life. If there's a fear of God in my life, it's not because God is ready to punish me, but fear of God is present to show us idols in our hearts because you and I are made to live for the Lord and Lord only. So God is not only angry at us, what God is angry is our hearts that are divided away from us because that's not who you're meant to be. And that's not only the idolatry Micah points out to Israelites here. Not only are Israelites in danger of breaking the first commandment, of having multiple gods, or not loving the Lord, what we find in chapter 2, we didn't get to read this, we'll read a portion of it, is not only Israelites are guilty of breaking their commitment to the Lord, but they're also found not loving their neighbors. And that's why we see Micah chapter 2, verse 2. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want to take someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property and stealing his family's inheritance, uh, literally robbing them of their identity. Further, there were false teachers and false prophets who said, this is fine, who promote false sense of security and lies. Chapter 2, verse 6, don't say such things to people's son. Don't prophesy like that. Such disasters will never come our way. And it gets worse. Chapter 2, verse 10, 8 through 10. Yet to this very hour, my people rise against me like enemy. Not only they're rebellious against the Lord, they rise against them. You steal the shirts right off the backs of those who trust you, making them as ragged as men returning from battle. You evicted women from their pleasant homes and forgive, forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. Up, be gone. This is no longer your land and home, for you have filled it with sin and ruined it completely. Oftentimes what we see, sin targets the most vulnerable. And in the scripture, there are women and children. We see that in the world today too, don't we not? Israel is guilty of not only having hatred, rebellion towards God, but also rebellion and hatred towards God by mistreating others. All in all, chapter 1 and 2 highlight the crux of Israel's sin. They are led astray in idolatry of their selfishness, thinking about them and them alone. They create idols to suit their desires, close their ears to the watching world, and out of that heart comes hatred, 
anger, mistreatment of others. Therefore, we could see why. Why God responds to them in anger, anger against Israel's sin. And before we say, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. Don't we really wrestle with this? Do you really understand that God has to be against sin? God has to punish sin. Who is like our God, who is righteous, full of justice, who will stand and will not let sin go unpunished? That's why we follow this God, because God promises justice. Who is like our God? But church, gospel message doesn't just end there. Because Micah also says, who is like our God in his righteous anger? But he also says, who is like our God in his mercy and in his grace? Who is like God in our mercy and grace? And second, that's the second thing we see. In his play, Merchant of Venice, William Shakespeare created a character who is entirely justified in seeking revenge. Shylock, a Jewish moneylender, has lived his life as a subject of constant anti-Semitic attacks, with one of his, um, his main antagonists being Antonio, the merchant of this place title. Antonio has called Skylock terrible names, assaulted, spit on him, so Antonio defaults on a loan from Skylock, one of the which the merchants offer a pound of his own flesh as security. Shylock is eager to collect and the audience, having witnessed all the atrocity the Shylock has gone through, they're waiting for the vengeance to happen. Yet something unexpected happens in the famous scene when Shylock demands what he's owed. It is there one of the characters, Portia, begs Shylock to consider mercy, and this is what it is written. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven. Upon the place beneath, it is twice blessed. It blesses him, it blesses him that gives and him that takes. The mightiest and the mightiest, it becomes a throne monarch better than his crown. The scepter shows the force of temporal power, attribute to all and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of the kings. But mercy is above this scepter away. It is enthroned in the hearts of the king. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then showeth like God when mercy seasons justice. What a beautiful line of mercy at that. And the question is, does Shylock show mercy? Absolutely not. He feels that he's justified. And he does show his vengeance rather than show mercy. Church, if there's anyone in the history that feels justified in his anger, it should be God and God alone, who is righteous and holy, blameless, the scripture reminds us. Therefore, that's why he's God. If God is not like that, you and I should not follow God like this. They're man-made idols at best. God has to be righteous and just at all times. But this righteous God shows mercy and grace. That's why Micah says, who is like this God? Well, before we jump into mercy and grace, we must note this, because quite often, we want to jump straight there. We want to get the mercy and grace right away. Say, okay, okay, Pastor, I got it. Tell me the good news. Tell me that I'm forgiven, I'm loved, no matter what I do, just as I am. We want that. But unless we fully understand where you're saved from, you will not fully appreciate the grace of God. 
You see, Israel will face complete destruction in chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. This is what Micah says. So I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundation. All her carved images will be smashed. All her sacred treasures will be burned. These things were brought with the money, bought with money earned by her prostitution, and they will now be carried away to pay the prostitutes elsewhere. In fact, it comes true. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is invaded by Assyrians. And the nation in Samaria is utterly wiped out, and the existence of these ten tribes are wiped out with few remnants remaining. And we do not hear of this northern kingdom in history books after 722 BC. What about the southern kingdom, Judah? Micah 2, 3, 4 says, But this is what the Lord says, I will reward your evil with evil. You won't be able to pull your neck out of the noose. You'll no longer walk around proudly, for it will be a terrible time. In that day, your enemies will make fun of you by singing this song of despair about you. We're finished, completely ruined. God has confiscated our land, taking it from us. He has given our fields to those who betray us. And they also experience this too. They go in exile, as God promised it, at the hands of Babylonians. As hand of Babylonians, they experience brief, brief relief when they repent. The king Hezekiah repents, but they experience invasion by same Assyrians years before the exile as a warning, but eventually they are taken away in exile. What we must recognize, church, before we jump into grace, is God will punish sin. Do you get that? When, when the scripture says, come as who you are, that does not mean, ah, you're good, man. That thing that you did, I got it. Don't worry about it, right? That's not what God's gospel is saying. Gospel says, that sin you should die for, but still come and let me deal with this. Because I'm not just talking about sin and covering it, but I'm going to deal with it by forgiving it, by punishing someone else for you. God will punish sin, Scripture says, very clear. That is God's decree, because God is only good God and loving God if God punishes sin. A while back, I read one of the most horrendous acts out of Kansas City. A mother is accused of allowing her two-year-old daughter, and I know there's a lot of um, trauma here, so I want to give you a warning. This is sexual trauma. But a mother is accused of allowing her two-year-old daughter to get raped and contract STD, a two-year-old daughter. When I read this, even now, I shudder. I cry justice. And we long and say, how long, O Lord? We all have this sense of justice, don't we? God gives that to us. And if God does not punish this kind of sin and says, that's fine, what kind of God is this? What kind of God do you and I want to follow? And church, I'm not saying this with conceited heart because I declare to you this morning with a trembling heart knowing that my heart is just as sinful. And I stand before the Lord recognizing that I, my sins, must be punished by God. I have sinned upon sin upon sin that God will punish. I stand with a trembling heart knowing that the judgment day is coming. He will come. And when we come to Micah's name here, we must recognize first and foremost, God is a righteous God who will punish sin. We sin, we fell, 
And the question for us is, what is the hope that you and I have? And that's why we gather on this Sunday. That's why we encourage one another as we read and pray, not only to repent, not only to seek mercy and justice, but we come just as who we are, begging for mercy, knowing that sin must be punished. As you sit here, perhaps you came because someone asked you to come. Perhaps you said, okay, beginning of the new year, I want to make a, make a commitment to follow Christ and come. Perhaps you've been walking with the Lord all your life, but make no mistake about it. It's not you coming to service where God gets to serve you. You come begging for mercy at the throne of God who declares, I created you and you must live according to my standard. It is by God's mercy that you are able to sit and listen to God's command this morning. But you know what God says along with that? But I still love you. I still love you. Therefore, I will punish your sin by sending a mediator for you. In church, if we are preaching the gospel clearly, we must teach you and proclaim that God is good God who must punish sin because he created you and I in his image. But he also will punish sin by sending his Savior to die on the cross. And we got a glimpse of that in Micah chapter 2. After all this destruction he foreshadows, this is what he says. Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnants who are left. I will bring you together again like a sheep in a pan, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leaders will break out, lead you out and exhale out through the gates of its enemy cities, back to your own land, your king will lead you, the Lord himself will guide you. And that's the promise Micah gives. And how does he do this? He will, he does this by sending the mediator, the righteous king will lead them, who not only demonstrated to us what it means to live as a righteous person with God, but who will transform us, make us into his people, write the covenant of grace upon our hearts by showing mercy on the cross. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve, but this king not only says you don't get what you deserve, but he also says I'm going to give you the life that you don't deserve, and that's called grace. Jesus gets what we deserve by taking our sins on the cross and dies, faces the wrath of God. But he also gives us grace, meaning that you, don't, you get what you don't deserve by getting eternal life, being considered the sons and daughters of God, that you could call our God, Abba, Father, and come to him with an open heart, a prodigal God that runs after us. That's the promise of the gospel truth. Amen? Amen. That's what you hold on to. That's the, the grace that you and I grasp this morning. You know what Micah is amazed by? We often mistaken this as we read chapter 1 and 2. We see all this description of God's anger. And perhaps you think, oh, who is like this God who is so angry? But Micah is actually more amazed by God's grace. When he says, who is like our God? Who is like God? He's saying, who is like this God? He's asking people around him and saying, have you seen a God like this? You're full of idols, all those transactional gods in your life. Do this, and they'll do this for you. But this God is not transactional. He's covenantal. He says, even though you fail me, I will still bless you. Who is like our God, who shows mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. All people of Israel and Judah and church of God, listen to God's command. Hear the command of the Lord. Come back to him because our God is not merely an angry God. God is a righteous God, but who also shows mercy and grace. 
And that's where we come to the original question, is God always an angry God? Again, yes, he is angry at sin because sin and how it disrupts our lives of humanity. But our God in his righteous anger punishes our Savior. And when his wrath is met on the cross, his mercy flows through Christ to us. And even in the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of this mercy. Lamentation 3, his mercies are new every morning. Exodus 34, God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering. Deuteronomy 7, God is merciful, God who keeps promises. Psalm 145, Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, creating mercy. And we'll see in a little bit, Micah 7, 18 through 19, who is God like you? This is what Micah says. Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnants, remnants of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who is like our God, church? Who is like our God? So that means if you're a follower, true a follower of Christ, you are known by the love of God, not by his anger. Because God will punish sin, not you. His anger at sin is met on the cross. And you and I, along with the rest of the world, will stand before the Lord, facing his righteous injustice at the end of the day. You and I, only difference Christ's followers have with, quote-unquote, outside the world, is you place your trust in your Savior. Not that you live more righteous life. Perhaps you live worse life. That means you and I are desperate for this grace of the Lord and you appreciate and love this Savior who has shown your love to us. Therefore, if you truly are a follower of God who truly know who God is, you cannot help but to love other people. You cannot help but to think others are better than you. You cannot help but to think, I am the worst sinner, but Christ died for my sin. Church, that's how we preach Christ crucified. You and I are bought at a price. Our God will gather his people to himself. He will set them together in multitudes. He will be our head. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray, church. That's the message of the gospel. Father, we come, we listen to the word that's preached to us. We pray as we come and partake in this Lord's Supper. Lord, this is a violent table. We talk about the food. We talk about the drink. We celebrate but we recognize in order for this table to happen, even after the Last Supper, you went and was violently murdered on the cross. Died the death that we were supposed to die so that we can stand and be embraced by the loving embrace of a Father who loves us, whose posture towards us is love, love, love. Thank you, Lord, for that grace. Christ, let me pray. Amen.